University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. It said that the sword of William Wallace was, um, well, let's just put it this way. The scabbard was supposed to be made of the flesh of his enemies that he had killed along the way in this war for Scotland. Ice, the ancestral sword of the House Stark, was wielded by Ned Stark until he was executed and it became the widow's whale or the oath keeper. The sword of Gryffindor was the demise of Nagini and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, By the way, only a true Gryffindor can wield the sword of Gryffindor. Tolkien introduced us to Sting, the sword of Bilbo and Frodo Baggins, and it apparently glowed when orcs were around. Skywalker had his lightsaber. Link saved Zelda with his master sword. Lion-O had his sword of omen. Shall I go on? But there is no more famous sword than that of Excalibur. Said upon the death of the king, this fabulous sword was stuck into a stone and only those who are worthy would be able to pull it out. Of course, we know the legend. Men tried and failed, but a boy named Arthur pulled it out of the stone. Legends of historical and literary swords are quite fascinating. I can't think of a more fascinating sword of the Bible than the giant of Goliath, which is where we'll take our text this morning. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3. Our narrative will be the legend by which the true king of Israel will will be made. David will be bolstered from this shepherd boy hero, warrior and icon, a king, into the legends of all the verses. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3, here we go. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs wore bronze greaves, and on bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, he will become your, we will become your subjects." But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of Israel were dismayed and terrified. And verse 16 tells us, For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Israel has geared up for battle again against the Philistines. And the two armies are uh, on opposite positions of hills. Except this time, their hearts are overcome with fear. Heart is a running theme throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Several of our Sunday school classes are working through 1 and 2 Samuel. And for the sake of time, it's this cyclical pattern of the people's hearts are geared towards God. The people begin to fall away from God. They find some sort of oppressor, and then their heart returns back to God. But apparently this time, 
fear has filled their heart, and a giant will do that every single time. The narrator tells us that this behemoth of a man was six cubits. That's nine feet, nine inches tall. Can you imagine that type of a person? And as if that wasn't enough, Goliath wore a bronze helmet, a huge chainmail coat weighing 5,000 shekels. That's roughly 250 pounds. His javelin slung around his shoulder blades. His spearhead weighed 600 shekels, about 20 pounds. The shaft of his weapon was the size of a weaver's beam, so about five inches in diameter. The scripture tells us that, that Goliath came out every single day and began to bark taunts at the Israelites. Just send out one man. If I lose to him, then y'all can overcome us. If I beat him, then we will overcome you. This is a challenge of champions. This goes back as far as we can have in history, where two people would face off against each other to save the lives of thousands. And Israel feared Goliath. Israel was consumed with fear. They were consumed with apathy. They couldn't move. They had to simply be still. And for 40 days, they took this terror from this behemoth of a man. The Greeks believed that Atlas, a giant, held the sky up. They also believed in Cyclops, a giant that bore a single eye on the forehead. We know the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. The ancient Japanese believed in a giant demon named Oni. The ancient, uh, America, the ancient Americans, Americans we, we think of giants, we think of Paul Bunyan, and of course the really gentle giant of the Jolly Green Giant. Hebrew spies saw that the, these giants were dominating the, the promised land, and so out of their fear they chose to doubt God and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. From all the corners of the earth, as far back as ancient civilization, people have stories of giants. Now, if I wanted to give you a cliche sermon this morning, I would help us to figure out who the giants are among us, and we should go face off against those giants. Yet, I believe that there is a giant that stands at the edge of our camp, bellowing its taunts and intimidation, wielding its giant sword and spears. We've woken this giant, and oftentimes we don't realize who that giant is, because that giant is you. And that giant is me. I once heard someone say that the greatest obstacle you will face in your life is you. In reality, our minds and our souls allow us to be filled with fear and jealousy, <coughs> excuse me, and delusion, and frustration, and anger, and sadness, and guilt, and shame, and pessimism, and negativity, and misguided goals and directions, and Greed and apathy take root within our heart and our mind. <coughs> we are, in fact, our worst giants. We are the ones that choose, <coughs> excuse me, the lifestyle where we choose uh, to, to have more money con to consume and to, to spend. <coughs> more money that raises more work, that gives us more stress more conflict. We are the ones that choose the way that we use our time. We choose that hobby and that activity and that project. We have puffed up the giant so much that our lives are so busy, so filled. <coughs> Excuse me, y'all. I apologize. Nothing's grosser than the sound of somebody swallowing water in a microphone. <coughs> we choose selfishness over care for others. We desire to stand high in success while others fail and achieve less. We are the giant's 
that intimidate our own souls, our own faith, our own choices, our own work, our own relationships. We are the giant that is barking insults and words of doubt that prevent our soul from shrinking back to size and actually trusting God with our everyday lives. We conceive people in circumstances that are far greater than us, preventing us from actually stepping forward into a new existence. As someone once said, the human heart is always a conflict with itself. So yes, there be giants, but more often than not, those giants lie within us. Stop and consider <coughs> the gangly, hulking, and armor colossus that oftentimes lies within our souls. Unchecked and uncontested, I, giant, and giant, you, have blood on our hands. It's the blood of others' poverty and hunger, of epidemics and discrimination and racism and war and oppression and global threats. The list goes on and on and on. Just look at the church. How often are we power-hungry, control freaks, people that seek after mediocrity in fee-fi-fo-fum, the community of God is being intimidated by giants among us. Who will stand against these giants? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Who will stand against the giants within us? You see, what oftentimes prevents us from moving forward is that cowardice, that fear within us that drives down to the heart of our very existence, and we wonder who might have the courage to speak into our lives. Would we at least be open to God speaking to us? And that is when we find our hero that arrives on the scene. You see, the narration continues that this shepherd boy named David shows up to simply bring a meal to his brothers to bring a report back to his father, and David hears the bellowing of this giant off in the distance. And unlike the other Israelites, his heart is not consumed with fear. His heart is consumed with faith and a drive to move forward. And so David begins to speak to his brothers about this, but they think he's being arrogant and self-centered, and they tell him to, to shut his mouth, and soldiers begin to hear that someone in the camp is saying they will stand against Goliath, and so word reaches Saul. Word is that if someone would fight and face this Goliath of a man, that they would receive a tax break. As much as taxes change, they really do stay the same. Oh, and by the way, you can marry one of Saul's daughters. But David's words of courage reach the ears of Saul, a shepherd boy is summoned. And this is what happens next in verse 32. <clears throat> it says, David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off sheep from the flock, I went after it <coughs> and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned to me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of the Philistine. You remember when I told you that heart is a common theme throughout the book of First and Second Samuel? <coughs> Excuse me. David, faced with people whose hearts are consumed with fear, 
has a heart that turns towards God. It's a heart that yearns, not in doubt, but a heart that yearns forward. In fact, it's only those who are around David that want to shroud his heart with doubt. His brothers try to talk him down. His brothers try to tell him he's being silly and stupid, as every good brother should tell their little brother to do. And even Saul in this moment begins to say to him, you are just a small little guy. Who are you to this huge giant? How often do we allow others' doubt to prevent us from moving forward? How often do we allow the giants in our life to prevent us from dreaming of a greater reality than we are currently experiencing? How often do the giants in our life, both within and around us, prevent us from changing for the better? So David chooses the guidance of God. That's what a heart for God does. It faces doubt and apathy, and David chooses confidence and action. How often do we take the advice of people who want us to not act, to not move, to not follow in the way of Jesus? How often do we choose spiritual immaturity instead of facing the giants that cause us to grow up and move along in our lives? But what would happen in our life journey if each of us would face that snarling giant within us and around us? What would happen if we realized that that giant is there for a reason, so don't think that you can't face it because God is allowing you to trust God to move forward, to overcome such odds. And the story (coughs) takes place next in verse 37. It says, Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over his tunic and tried to walk around because he was not able he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. He took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in a pouch in his shepherd's bag, and a sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Do you remember the old folk story of John Henry? Railroads began to link the United States uh, together in this uh, uh, trans-Atlantic and and trans-Pacific railroad movement. And to lay the the railroad, it took uh, immense manpower to clear the way, to to lay down the planks, to hammer them down in the line. And up through the ranks came this man named John Henry. And John Henry was the strongest and fastest man involved in the railroad company. He used a hammer that weighed more than six kilograms, the story says. And some say that he was able to cut a path uh, three to six meters in a day. By John Henry's hands, his fellow railmen kept their jobs, even facing this gigantic railroad mechanism that was coming. The railroad company said that the rail machine could drill holes faster than 12 men in a working day. The railroad company planned to buy the machine and to lay off all the railmen. And so John Henry looked at the machine, and he saw images of the future. He saw a machine that would take place of the Americans' best laborers. He saw himself and his friends unemployed and standing by a road asking for food. He saw men losing their families and their rights to be humans. And so he picked up the sledgehammer and faced off against that gargantuan machine. You see in this, we're probably thinking David to himself, why would he face off against such a giant like this? 
And even Saul, as he begins to equip him with all of these uh, tools of war that would help him to be successful, David shrugs them off and he moves forward with the tools that God had given him. For our own experience, how often do we try to come up with the best plans, the best scheme, the best way to approach things, and it's our way of coming up with our own tools, our own mechanisms, when in fact we have been equipped with all that we need to be faithful to God's calling in our life. And the narrative wraps up here in verse 41 with this. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked at David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome and despised him. I never really caught that until I read the text this time. He was handsome and so he despised him. Verse 43, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give your carcass to the Philistine army, to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David teaches us yet another lesson about a heart of God. It has confidence in God. David doesn't need the approval of others, of his family, of the king. He doesn't need the tools of men to overcome the giant. David believes and has confidence that God is with him. And so he steps into this situation fully in confidence with God. I love that moment that he starts down the hill that David, uh, that Goliath begins this psychological warfare. He's trash-talking David the whole way down. It wasn't just a smidgen or a bit of trust that David had in God, but David is literally trusting his entire existence and his future on God. David had an unabashed confidence in God because they had a history together. God had moved and worked in his life. God had utilized him and used him in the past. God had proven God's self to be trustworthy. And so David steps fully into this situation. Perhaps David's greatest accomplishment was that he was bringing the attention back to God. Up until this moment, Israel had forgot about God. Saul had forgot about God. Even Goliath is speaking down to the God of the Israelites, yet David brings back God into the situation. We have so-called faith in God. But what happens when that faith is tested? What happens each day when we have the opportunity to, to step out, to face against the giants within our lives, within ourselves, and among us in our community? Do we shrink back in fear or do we step forward? The text wraps up in verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching in his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. This is usually when the Sunday school story ends. Verse 51, David ran over and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath, and after he killed him, he cut his head off with the sword. 
When the Philistines saw that the hero was dead, they turned and they ran. I think the Israelites and the Philistines' collective look on their face was something probably like this. No one was expecting this. Goliath certainly didn't anticipate it. He had all of this armor, and yet the one vacant spot was his forehead. But that's simply an afterthought when the stone sank deep into his cranium. You see, David teaches us that an obedient heart overcomes giants. David didn't just have faith and confidence in God, but he did as God told him to do. That means that David was willing to actually listen to God, actually hear the voice of his God in his life, and actually step forward in faith. Faith is not a good game to talk. Faith requires action. In Tolkien's Middle Earth, there is an infamous sword called Narsil. It's the sword of the king of Gondor. Yes, I just went all dorky on you. In the great battle of Middle-earth, the sword is shattered by the dark lord Sauron, only to have a shard of the sword cut the ring off of his finger. And after the war, when the ring of power has consumed the king of Gondor, Narsil is left in, in shards for centuries. The great sword that saved the West was forgotten and tucked away as it was worthless. Yet when the Dark Lord rose again, when the courage of men began to fail, Narsil was taken and it was forged back again. But this time, it was known as the Flame of the West. It is this great sword facing against this coming darkness, wielding by the true king of men, Aragorn. You see, there is a great sword that is coming to face I giants and you giants. It's not a sword of violence, but Jesus is bringing a sword to plunge deep into our tendency towards arrogance and self-centeredness and control and power and materialism and racism and fear and trepidation and apathy, and hatred, and sorrow. You see, Jesus' invitation is to change our way of thinking and living. It is the invitation to put to death the giants within us so that we might discover new life through Christ. As David would later write, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassions. Blot out my wrongdoing. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, taking away your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit. You see, do we have the courage to allow Jesus to change our way of thinking and living? Can we step out in faith, allowing Jesus' light to overcome the darkness that is I giant and you giant? that is hulking over our lives and others? Are we ready to discover what it means to have a heart for God? The last thing I want to leave you with this text is this. Did you notice that David picked up five stones and not just one? Some commentators have read that to believe that David didn't necessarily have faith in his uh, shot and he might miss and need to reload, if you will. First and second Samuel actually report that Goliath had one giant brother and three giant cousins. So what we learn from Davis is this. 
get over the victory quickly because more giants are coming. For David, the next giant would be the big emotional drama king named Saul. Then the giant of uniting 12 tribes into a nation. Then the giant of a married woman bathing naked in eyeshot of the palace. Then the giant that would be his family. And then the giant that will be David himself. As we face the giants in our life, maybe even giant me and giant you, may we know that more giants are coming. So heart for God matters today. In this battle...